Just a brief announcement as we begin. Um, normally, I work from the church office Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Um, this week, I'm going to need to adjust my schedule, so if you would like to meet, just text me before you show up. Um, Friday, I plan to be here all day, but the rest of the week, i got to move some things around. Beloved, the Lord calls us this evening to worship with these words from Psalm 43. Send out your light and your truth, let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. It is the Lord who calls us and who gathers us as his people. Let us therefore ask his help that we might honor him indeed. Let's pray together. Lord, you have called us and we are yours. Use us to bring honor and glory unto you. And Lord, speak to us truly, both to our minds and our hearts, that when we leave this place, we might rejoice to have met with our Father and our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Beloved, our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. To you who have been called, who are sanctified by God the Father and preserved through Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Amen. Let's sing praise together to the Lord from number 78 in our Psalter hymnal. 78, we'll sing stanzas 1, 3, and 4.
We confess our faith this evening using the words of the Nicene Creed. You can find that on page 4 in the back of your Psalter hymnal. Page 4 in the back. Beloved of the Lord, in whom do you believe? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. And I believe one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our psalm selection this evening is Psalm 130. This is a beautiful psalm of confession. This psalm is a plea for mercy, for forgiveness. That very early on acknowledges the universality of sin. How countercultural it is now to hear this acknowledgement that of ourselves, left to our own ways. There's not one of us who could stand before God. There's not one of us who will do what is right or what is good. But then the psalmist leads us to confess our hope, our strength, our life is not in us but in the Lord. This is looking forward to Christ. Remember, this is a psalm of ascent. The original singers very likely were on their way to Jerusalem where they would witness the sacrifices, the outpouring of the blood, the breaking of the body, the utter and complete destruction of one who was being destroyed for the sake of those who worship. Confessing confidence in the Christ who was to come. 
He then calls out to Jerusalem, to Israel, to all of God's people, trust in Him. Not in yourself, not in your idols, not in your false gods, but in the Lord, in His Savior. This is our song. Because it's speaking of Christ, first, last, and always. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Amen. Let us take up this psalm as our prayer and confession. We're going to sing from Selection A in our Trinity Psalter hymnals, 130A. We'll sing all the stanzas. As we come before the Lord in prayer, in your announcement bulletin, there were an abundance of prayer concerns um, for missionary works and outreach works. We think of Reverend Brummel with Divine Hope Reform Bible Seminary in the prisons, um, but also um, IRBC, which we don't think normally of a missionary, or don't normally think of as a missionary work, but it very much is, because... They're going to folks in the midst of their need, in the midst of their crisis, and they're bringing God's Word, showing them that God is the one who helps and delivers. There's Westside Reformed Church in Cincinnati, which is a um, church plant that has grown. It is now particularized. It's its own church, uh, but it's still young and small, um, and yet they've been given a church building. Um, in a new section of town, an old section of town. 
uh, where there's really nothing in terms of confessional Reformed churches. Um, And then the work of Reformed Mission Services in uh, Costa Rica and uh, Word and Deed in India, where there's quite a bit of persecution. So we need to keep those all in our prayers, as well as the the broader ministries they represent. Um, And then this afternoon, we sent a prayer concern around um, concerning Heidi Hansen. She was taken to the hospital overnight, suffering with severe abdominal pain. Um, And she uh, ended up going into surgery this morning. It was due to a ruptured cyst. And um, that surgery went extremely well. Uh, She's doing much better now, and she's very thankful. So let's pray for continued uh, healing and pain relief for Heidi and uh, comfort for her and Jake. And then finally, um, David Veneman's great-aunt Lila uh, passed away this morning. Uh, So please keep the Veneman family in your prayers. Let's pray. Father, with the psalmist we confess... Were we to stand on our own and to trust in the merits that we have obtained, we have no hope. But we praise you and we thank you that we do not need to stand on our own, but that rather you have given us hope and life and strength in Christ. You have washed away our sins through His sacrifice on the cross. And as You showed us in the sacrament this morning, through Him You have nourished us unto life eternal, and we're so grateful. Father, we pray that You would make us eager not only to trust in Christ, though this above all else, but also to tell the world, to tell all who would come before us of the hope and the help and the strength that is ours through Christ and through Him alone. Make it to be our joy and our passion to tell our children and our grandchildren what You have done in Christ and how our hope is found in Him alone. Make it to be our passion for our neighbors that they know where hope and life are found. Give us the courage to invite others to church where they might hear the word proclaimed and where they might be influenced by your people and make us to be a welcoming people, eager to receive those whom you send to us and always ready to give a good reason for the hope that is within us. Father, we are reminded through the struggles that we occasionally confront of how essential it is that we know where our hope is found, that we know where our strength and our forgiveness and our reconciliation are rooted. Lord, we thank you that you provide for each one of us in our times of need. Thank you for being with Jake and Heidi overnight as Heidi had to go into the hospital and undergo surgery. Lord, we praise you for the good outcome. And we ask that you would give her continued healing and strength and pain relief. We pray that you would continue to comfort them with the knowledge of your perfect presence and your healing power. We pray for um, comfort for the Veneman family as they grieve the passing of David's great aunt. Lord, we pray that you would comfort and strengthen them in that and remind them all of the importance 
putting our hope for life and death, for now and always in Christ. And Lord, you have entrusted that glorious message to us. Make your church eager to bring that message to those who don't yet know. Lord, we thank you for the work of Brother Brummel and others who work with Divine Hope Reform Bible Seminary. We pray that you would make their labors among incarcerated men and women to be effective and powerful. You have put those folks in a place where the cost of sin is evident to them and the brokenness of life is clear. We pray, Father, that you would make the Word effective in drawing them to the life and the truth that is found in Christ. And we pray that those who go through that program would be well-equipped and impassioned to minister to others among their incarcerated neighbors and to bring to them the knowledge of Christ and His salvation. Lord, we pray that You would continue to raise up and, and equip folks from Your church through IRBC also. You have given the church opportunity to learn how to counsel those in times of need, those who are facing crises, according to the truth of Your Word. Lord, we pray that You would raise up many from among the people of Your church here in, in Michigan and throughout the reach of IRBC in uh, California and Georgia and Indiana and Iowa and New Jersey and South Dakota and Washington and elsewhere. Lord, we pray that You would expand the reach of those who are well-equipped to speak into the life of those who are struggling. And Lord, we thank you for raising up your church in places where the gospel is not uh, broadly or faithfully preached. We thank you for the work of Westside Reformed Church in Cincinnati and for providing for them a new, a new church home. We pray, Father, that you would bless their labors at the new building, that you would give them the resources to be able to care for that building and, and restore it to its uh, full usefulness. And we pray, Father, especially that you would bless their missionary outreach in this new neighborhood, that those around the building might come to know that the church is not that edifice made of stone and wood, but the people who worship therein, who confess Christ and sing of the glory of our God and, and who know the joy of your salvation. Lord, we pray for your work abroad. Lord, we think of um, the work of RMS in Costa Rica where they're seeking to build a new church building and parsonage in Las Cuadros. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, provide for that work and, indeed, for the continued spread of your church in Costa Rica, as well as in Mexico and Ecuador, Guatemala, and in other places where you have been raising up the church. Lord, we pray that you would send workers out into the field because we know that the harvest is ready. That there are many who recognize the misery of their sin and who long for something better. 
Lord, we pray that you would raise up men who are able and equipped to preach your word, that you would gather together your church in many places, that you would cause your praises to be sung and the faith of Christ to be embraced. And Father, where the word is received both with joy by your elect, but also with with hatred and persecution by the evil one, we pray that you would protect and guard your people. We think of uh, the ethnically motivated attacks in India, which have been growing in recent years, especially in areas where uh, the Hindus have risen up to defend their false religion and their false gods. Lord, we pray that you would protect your saints and that you would comfort those who have lost so much in terms of their homes, in terms of their livelihoods, even in terms of their loved ones who have been killed. We pray, Father, that you would protect and guide them, that you would deepen their faith, that you would cause them to proclaim Christ despite the cost of doing so, that through the fervor of their testimony the truth of your gospel might shine all the more brightly. And Father, we pray that you would make us to be fervent about proclaiming your truth. For many, many years, confessing Christ in America has come with little cost other than a bit of inconvenience. But increasingly, we are scorned Increasingly, we are a minority who hold firm to your word. Increasingly, we're marginalized and our freedoms undercut. Father, cause us to recognize the treasure that is ours in possessing the gospel and in being able to proclaim forgiveness freely given and graciously earned through Christ. Make us, Lord, passionate. Make us to be passionate about proclaiming that truth and cause us to be effective. Effective not in getting people to say the right words, but in setting the truth before those who need to hear it that whether they receive it by faith or reject it in unbelief, they might know that they've been confronted with the only truth that will save and the only truth that will bring life. And now, Lord, we pray that you would equip us through your word for living in a way that highlights and demonstrates the truth and send us forth from this place rejoicing, Lord, that we have been refreshed by your word, that we have been encouraged by your people, and above all, that we have been loved by you. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Beloved, as we prepare to look together to God's word as it is um, applied to us in the ninth commandment, We're going to stand and sing from a portion of Psalm 119, from Selection 250 in our Blue Psalter hymnal. This is a portion of God's Word. We we think of Psalm 119 
in the way that it highlights God's law. And it does do that. But in highlighting God's law, it reminds us that we live constantly before God and that we are called to emulate Him. That that's, that's what God's law does for us. It changes us. It transforms us so that more and more we reveal the holiness and the love and the, uh, the righteousness of God. And that's why we love God's law. So think on that as we stand and sing together number 250 from our Psalter hymnal. We'll sing all the stanzas. Our text this evening is going to be from Lord's Day 43, but before we look to that, I'd like to, um, to read with you two brief passages of Scripture. The first from Exodus 23, the first seven verses, and then from Ephesians 4, uh, about the last third of the chapter. Exodus 23, now uh, this section of Exodus contains a number of laws, and they're grouped sort of um, categorically. In other words, they're not random by any means. They, uh, they come together in a particular way uh, to guide the people in their living. And this particular part has regard for the upholding of truth and justice. God says, "...you shall not spread a false report." You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. 
If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge. And do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked, and you shall take no bribe. For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Amen. And then turning to Ephesians chapter 4. Now, Ephesians 4, there's two kids, there's two halves to Ephesians. You ever want an easy outline of Ephesians? First three chapters are what God has done. The last three chapters are how we are to respond. Okay? Chapter 4 talks about how we are to respond to the salvation we've received, to the new identity we've received as God's people. First by protecting and promoting our unity. Then by being part of the church, which was given to us to equip us for works of ministry. And then... Starting in verse 22, it talks about our daily conversion. Listen, starting in verse 22. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now you'll notice I amended that just a little bit so that it makes sense. This is the lifestyle we're to embrace might sound familiar. It's reflected in our catechism in Lord's Day 33. We're to put off the old, the sinful, the rebellious. We're to be transformed in our minds and in our hearts. And we're to put on the new, made after the image of Christ. And what does that look like? Verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Amen. Notice throughout that. Now he goes on, by the way, to talk about other ways in which the image of Christ needs to be cultivated within us. But notice the very first aspect of what it means to put on the new man made after the image of Christ has to do with our love for and our communication of truth. Worth noting. Now, Lord's Day 43 asks, what is God's will for you in the ninth commandment? Kids, what is the ninth commandment? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, right? What is God's will for you in that ninth commandment? That I never give false testimony against anyone. Twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone rashly and without a hearing. Rather, I should avoid, under penalty of God's wrath, 
every kind of lying and deceit as the very works of the devil. And in court and everywhere else, I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. And I should do what I can to defend and advance my neighbor's honor and reputation. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, which of the commandments prohibits lying? Put on the spot with that question, I think most of us would immediately turn to the ninth commandment. After all, it says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Bearing false witness involves lying, right? Of course. So the ninth commandment prohibits lying, and that's true. But so does the third commandment when it condemns a false oath taken in God's name. So does the fifth commandment in calling us to honor and submit to those over us. We saw last week that the eighth commandment condemns cheating, swindling, and schemes, all of which involve lying. And of course, the second commandment condemns lying about God in worship. And the first commandment prohibits lying about who is the true God. You see, in one way or another, all the commandments prohibit lying. It's more obvious, perhaps, in the Ninth Commandment, but it's not exclusive to that command. So what is exclusive? What is the unique point of the Ninth Commandment? I wrestled with that years ago when I was um, first preaching through the Ten Commandments. And it struck me that all the commandments prohibit lying in some way, shape, or form. And I had to ask myself that question. What sets this command apart if it's not just lying? But if we look at the command in Hebrew, we notice something a little off. See, Hebrew is, unlike English, a very inflexible language when it comes to its rules. Right? So if you look at the typical Hebrew sentence, and by typical I mean almost all of them, you will find that there is an order. Verb, noun, direct object, indirect object, right? So if you were trying to say, uh, let's see, Bill gave me the pencil. In Hebrew, it would be gave Bill the pencil to me. And it would be that way almost every time. If it wasn't in that order, you would know that something is being emphasized. Well, here we have, shall not answer you against your neighbor false testimony. Those last two were backward. They're in the right form, right? But against your neighbor should be last. And the fact that it's not, the fact that it's put right at the center of the sentence tells us, here's the point. See, the ninth commandment is prohibiting lying. It is about telling the truth, but it's particularly concerning our neighbor. It's not an abstract commendation of the truth. Truth is good. We serve the God of truth. But here the emphasis, the focus is on preserving the truth, cherishing the truth, promoting the truth, concerning my neighbor as a means of loving my neighbor. And that's what we're going to consider this evening. How God calls His grateful people who are overwhelmed with how He took us 
who according to Psalm 130, all deserve his wrath. Us, who according to the psalmist cannot stand before God if he dares to count our sin. We who would be confronted by Satan, whose very name means slanderer or accuser, and yet he wipes out those accusations by covering them with the blood of Christ. We who are grateful that he has wiped out our multitude of offenses and given us instead the righteousness and the holiness of Christ, we in gratitude cherish the truth for the sake of our neighbor. That's our theme. And there's both a negative and a positive side to that. The negative is that we need to be hating the falsehood that promotes injustice. So we're going to consider that first. But just to be clear, we need to recognize that truth-telling, rejecting lies, that is a big part of the ninth commandment. But we can't reduce this commandment. This is my point. We can't reduce this commandment to you shall not lie. Because that applies to all of the commandments. On the surface, the ninth commandment is about the courtroom, isn't it? We see that from the language the commandment uses. It speaks of bearing witness, literally answering with testimony. That's what you do in a court of law. You come up, you take a vow before God, third commandment. You take a vow before God to to speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And then you answer questions related to an accusation of wrongdoing against your neighbor. In the courtroom, our testimony is meant to do what? To promote justice and to defeat injustice. And that means more than merely speaking words that are true. Kids, you know that, right? You can, if you're careful, speak words that are true that promote a falsehood. Can't you? Like maybe you just speak part of the truth. Why did you hit your brother? Well, he stole my toy. But why did he steal your toy? Well, he didn't mention that first you stole his. Or maybe that you used that toy to hit him. And therefore he took your toy. And that's why you hit him. Right? If you only speak part of the truth, what you spoke was true. But the end result is a lie. Or maybe you put the emphasis where it doesn't belong so that people assume things. Or you use body language to make people doubt the truth of what you're saying. When God says not to bear false witness, He means more than just using words that are objectively true. He's meaning that we shouldn't use, we mustn't use words in a way so as to deceive people. So as to promote injustice. So as to unjustly deceive. Now that ought to be easy. Just tell what you know and leave the results to God. But it can be hard when the person hasn't done wrong, but you dislike him and maybe think you have good reason to dislike him. And it can be hard when you do like the person and yet he has done wrong. See, we get to where we desire a particular outcome and the temptation is to use words to obtain that outcome. But that's not our calling. Our calling is to tell the truth that we know and leave the outcome to God. 
And that means, as I said, hating the falsehood that promotes injustice. Now, this commandment, like most of the Ten Commandments, was given in negative form. That tells us something. That tells us that our inclination, our natural temptation, is to do something positively. And that's what's being prohibited. We're most tempted not to fail at telling the truth, but to succeed in telling the lie. That's what comes natural to our sinful hearts, bearing false witness. And that applies both to the courtroom and what we're in far more often than the courtroom, the court of public opinion. Kids, do you know what I mean by that? The court of public opinion? That's a, a way of talking about how people in general think. It refers to how people judge you based on how they think you behave. Not necessarily how you actually behave, but how they think you behave. The court of public opinion isn't a real court. It's just a way of talking about how people in general think. But the consequences of that public opinion are significant. If you are judged by the public at large as a good person, they'll cut you a lot of slack. They'll like you. They'll give you privileges. They won't inspect what you do too carefully. But if the community judges you a bad person, they will punish you. You'll get a bad reputation. They'll make your life miserable. They'll do all they can to make you feel worthless. Happens sometimes to kids in school. Boys especially. Boys, as a rule, have a much harder time with a classroom than girls. Because boys are made to run and hunt and conquer and build. Which is really hard to do from a desk. And so sometimes they get frustrated. They act up. They go, hey, y'all, watch this when the teacher's back is turned. And that's wrong. Kids, you know that's wrong, right? Don't act up in class. But here's the thing. Once you get busted for it once or twice, then when something happens in the classroom, guess who immediately gets blamed? That's the court of public opinion. Okay, Because of how you're thought of, because of the reputation you've gained, immediately it's assumed that you've done something wrong. The thing is, in the court of public opinion, the jury doesn't demand proof. It often only demands rumor. Malicious lies that have no basis in truth can destroy a person's reputation. And sometimes, incontrovertible proof of innocence means absolutely nothing. Now, our God is holy and just, and His judgment is always faithful. God says in Proverbs 6, Listen to this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty or proud eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. You see how those go together, by the way. Proud eyes. Someone who looks out at the world and thinks they can get away with whatever they want. A lying tongue. They speak according to what they desire, what they think, and hands that shed innocent blood. Because they're condemning those who've done no wrong. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, 
a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. Those all have to do with injustice spread by lies. And God hates them. They are an abomination to him. And he will not ignore those who embrace such evil. So Exodus 23 verse 1, which we read just a bit ago. He says, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious, a hateful witness. God despises those who spread injustice by accusing falsely. In fact, in Deuteronomy 19, he says the false witness deserves that which he sought to impose. What that means is if a person falsely accuses someone of something that deserves a fine, he's the one who should be fined. If a person falsely accuses someone of something that deserves death, he's the one who should die. If our country would embrace that standard, we would have much more justice in our courtroom. And if our families would embrace that standard, standard, we would have much less tattling, much less falsehood, much less rumor mongering. And God goes farther. He teaches us not to repeat what others say unless we know it to be true. Deuteronomy 19 says, condemn a person only on the evidence of two or more witnesses. It's not enough for one person to come forward and say that someone has done X, Y, or Z. It's not enough to hear it from two persons who didn't themselves see it happen. Unless a person saw a sin or has proof of it, his words have no weight as a witness. And there's got to be two of them. Two people who saw it or a person and evidence. That means we need to be careful what we believe and what we repeat. Young people. Classmate comes up to you and says, did you hear what Bob did? You must not simply believe what they say about Bob. You certainly may not repeat what you heard them say about Bob. Otherwise, you are condemning Bob, your neighbor, without evidence. And God says that is wicked. God says that is contrary to your identity as one who is in Christ. Same goes for us adults. We're we're good at sharing prayer concerns, aren't we? And I hate to say it, but it runs rampant in our homeschooling communities, in our Christian schooling communities. But unless we have proof from two or more sources, we must not believe it. Without proof, that allegation should never touch our tongue. God commands, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil. And then in verse 7, keep far from a false charge. Just because lots of people say it or someone you like or respect says it doesn't mean it's true. Our temptation is to join the crowd in condemning folks. After all, it's easy. We know and we trust the person from whom we heard it. The person they accuse sounds like a bad guy, sounds like he deserves your scorn. And, let's face it, to not fall in with the crowd, to not at least nod sympathetically risks being lumped in with that person. You don't, you don't doubt me, do you? Or you're not on his side, are you? But God says, don't you dare join them. If you don't know the charge to be true, you dare not affirm it. 
And if you join with the crowd in repeating that claim, at best you're a foolish witness testifying to that which you cannot know, and at worst you're condemning someone innocent which God hates. Which is the kind of thing, by the way, which God, Jesus put on the cross. We must not join in condemning anyone whose guilt we do not know. And what's more, we must not be silent when our neighbor is accused without evidence. We have the calling, not just the courts, not just the magistrate. We have the calling to protect the name of those who are accused falsely. Because if the tables were turned, that's what we'd want them to do to us. And what's the second great commandment? Love others as you love yourself. We'd want them not to repeat what they heard, to not spread the rumor. Instead, we'd want them to do what? To find out what the truth is and to protect our name. Well, what we desire for ourselves is what God wants us to do for them. Hearing a rumor. Honestly, the easy thing is to say, time out, I don't want to hear it. And that's commendable. But you know what's harder? Go ahead and listen. And then say, how do you know that's true? Do you have evidence? Oh, you heard it from a reliable witness. Did they show you the evidence? Did they see it? And if they did, who else saw it? Who else knows for sure that this is the case? How did you get your information? What is your proof? Who are your witnesses? They're not going to like that. That's why it's hard. Well, you're not on their side, are you? No, I'm on the side of truth. Kids, that means if someone in your class, or says, says of a classmate that they cheated, you need to ask, hold up, how do you know they cheated? Did you catch them? Who did? Were you there? Did you witness it? If there's no proof, the claim must not be passed off as fact, and in fact, we are obligated to go the extra mile and rebuke them for spreading what they don't know to be true. What did we hear in Ephesians 4 verse 25? Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth. We are called to be guardians of, advocates for, cheerleaders of the truth. And in fact, even if there is proof, we need to ask ourselves, why is it being spread? Maybe the guy down the street does have a drinking problem, but do we need to spread that around the neighborhood? Now, of course, there are things that do need to be spread. If you have credible evidence that your neighbor is abusing his child, please, by all means, go tell the police. If you have learned that someone in your circles is making drugs or providing liquor to young people or plotting some terrible crime, please go and tell the authorities who can do something legitimate about it. But when you just spread it, especially to others who have no means of legitimately dealing with it. What is your goal? What is your purpose? How is that serving justice or loving your neighbor more? Is that what you want them to do? Because every week we come here, we hear God's law, we are condemned by it. With the psalmist, we plead for forgiveness. 
acknowledging that we are guilty sinners, that every one of us deserves condemnation, deserves what put Christ on the cross. Now, do you want all of those sins for which you've been forgiven? Do you want those trumpeted among your peers, within your community? Do you want them knowing all of the things that you have done in the past? Oh, but I never did. No, you maybe didn't do that. But I bet I could name a dozen other things that you don't want spread. Young people, children, I'm kind of addressing you a good bit here tonight because I want you to set good patterns and high standards for the truth for yourselves now, early. But also because I can speak it to you and your parents will hear that. But like I said, patterns start early. I think to my shame of some of the rumors that were spread when I was in high school and of how dreadfully that impacted some of my classmates who went throughout life thinking themselves utter and complete losers, worthless, loved by no one, accepted by no one. Why? Because the strong chose to make them pray and their weapon of choice was false witness bearing false witness keep far from the false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous for I will not acquit the wicked when you attack them with words kids you've all heard it sticks and stones Break my bones, but names will never hurt me. A bigger lie could not be told. Words wound in ways that don't bleed, but that also seldom heal. In fact, Christ is the only one who can heal those wounds. So don't inflict them. But there's a positive side too. Not only does God call us to reject the falsehood that breeds injustice, He also calls us to show love for Him and love for His justice by promoting the opposite. We're to preserve the truth that promotes love. And that's the other thing that we see here. This positive side of the ninth commandment involves more than just avoiding sin, and that makes it harder. It's tough to go against the crowd, especially when the crowd believes that someone deserves their scorn. And it's even harder if you don't know or even dislike the one who's being accused. You really don't want to get involved. Especially if the accusation of sin is an ugly sin. Or if those spreading the accusation are people you love and respect. It's far easier in such cases to be quiet. To get out of there, to avoid the situation. Standing up for the falsely accused demands a faith that is strong. But if you remember that Christ didn't stand up for you when you were innocent but stood up for you despite knowing your guilt. Silenced Satan and will silence Satan on the day of judgment by saying, Satan, be quiet. 
I paid for those sins. They are no longer. This is a child of God. Now, if He has done and will do that for you, how dare you be silent in the face of false accusations or malicious accusations against your neighbor? In the midst of this courtroom instruction in Exodus 23, listen to this. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Doesn't sound like Ninth Commandment stuff, courtroom stuff, truth stuff, but it is. Our Father, whose image we bear, gives sun and rain and crops also to those who hate Him. And He calls us to do likewise. Put on the new self, created in righteousness and holiness after the image of Christ. And therefore, like your Father, be angry, but do not sin. Maybe your neighbor has wronged you in the past. Don't let that prevent you from loving Him. Maybe you've seen Him sin in dreadful ways at some point. Don't let that prevent you from protecting His name. Instead, guard His name. Seek her good. Treat them the way you want to be treated, even in private where no one else can see, or even out in public where it's going to affect your reputation. So what? Christ, who did everything right, Christ, who was utterly and completely holy and righteous, He was numbered with the worst criminals for our sake, for standing with us. Now will you refuse to stand up and be counted for this one? We must not. Rather, in court and everywhere else, I should love the truth, speak it candidly, openly acknowledge it. I should do what I can to defend and advance my neighbor's honor and reputation, whether or not I like him, whether or not he likes me, whether or not he seems to deserve it. Hmm. It's tempting when you see that ox fallen in the hole, when you see that donkey fallen under its load, when you see that person who hates you struggling. It's tempting to smile and wave and walk on by. God says, don't you dare, after all that I have done for you. Instead, out of love for me, eager to reflect to the world my loving kindness and my faithfulness, help him get that donkey back on its feet. Protect his name and his reputation. Three things. Love the truth. That's a matter of the heart. All godly behavior begins in the heart. Psalm 15 says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who shall have communion with God? Who? He who walks blamelessly and does what is upright and speaks truth in his heart. Walking blamelessly, acting in a godly way, begins with loving the truth in the heart with the heart being recreated after the likeness of Christ. That's not what arises naturally in our hearts. Naturally, our hearts are filled with sin and defilement and the evil of falsehood. So if we're to love the truth in our hearts, that needs to begin by trusting in Christ for forgiveness, 
by regarding God as our Father, by praying for the power of the Holy Spirit, by saturating ourselves in the truth of God's Word. It's only if God is at work within us as His child that we will begin to love the truth. But if He is at work within you, if you have truly trusted in Christ, if you pray to God daily as to your Father, if the Holy Spirit is at work within you, if you're spending time in this Word, if you are being nurtured by the sacraments and the Word of God, if you're being discipled by the saints, then you will more and more love the truth deep within your heart. So we need to cultivate that love for the truth. And if we do, then we will begin to want to act on it. We will be compelled to act on it. Let me be real practical. Kids, it is not a neutral thing. It is not an okay thing to think bad thoughts about others in your heart. For many years, I struggled with unreasonable anger, sinful anger. And you know where it always started? Right there, in the heart. Thinking bad thoughts about the person who had done something to me. Replaying in my mind the offense that I had felt, the unrighteous things they said, the way I'd like to get even. The more I thought about it, the more I gave my heart over to that lie, to that offense, the more I wanted to act out on it. We need to cherish Love, to cherish truth in the heart. And if we are, then we will begin to speak the truth candidly. This concerns our deeds, how we reflect that love for the truth. I should speak it candidly. Kids, do you know what candidly means? It means that we speak in a way that is sincere and open and honest. Many people are skilled at speaking true things in a way that casts doubt on them, but God's people are called to speak the truth sincerely. Listen to how Paul put it in Ephesians 4. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, that is, that which harms, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Don't just speak the first thing that comes to your mind. Don't just call a spade a spade because that's the most loving thing. It's not. The most loving thing is to think about what the person needs to hear and then to think carefully about how to say it in a way that will build them up rather than tearing them down, that will convey the truth without unnecessarily harming them with it. We must speak the truth, but we must do so in a way that is both honest and loving. Saying what's true but saying it in a way that builds up. That's not always easy. Because sometimes the truth the neighbor needs to hear will show him his sin. Sometimes the truth our neighbor needs to hear will reveal to him that others are spreading lies about him. Sometimes the truth that our neighbor needs to hear will be a call to be discipled, to be accountable, a call to hear something they don't want to hear. That can be hard. It can be far easier to either say nothing or to say it harshly and then walk away. But God calls us to say it in a way that builds them up, that nurtures them, that brings them life. And further, we're called to openly acknowledge the truth. That means we are called as God's people to encourage those who speak the truth. It's hard 
to counter rumors and lies and unproven accusations. So when you see it, stand with the person who's doing it and thank them afterward and silently pray for God to continue giving them the courage they need because otherwise they will feel so very alone and you wouldn't want that for yourself, would you? So thank them for speaking up for the truth and stand by their side as they do it. Openly acknowledge it. Folks, all of these, loving the truth in your heart, speaking the truth, openly acknowledging the truth, these are pleasing to God. We serve the God of truth, and therefore we must cherish these things, cultivating the promotion of truth within ourselves. That's where it starts, isn't it? We need to be praying that God would teach us to love the truth. We need to be praying that God would give us a discerning heart so that when we hear these things, and they don't come with a label, a big red label that says rumor mongering. It doesn't come that way. Oh, did you hear about the, the hard thing that family's going through? Who, that son of theirs. Really? Hold up. Hold up. Oh, that guy's a scoundrel. Did you hear? Time out. We need to pray for the discernment to recognize the false accusation, the rumor, the inappropriate sharing. We need to pray for the courage and the wisdom to know what to say and to be willing to say it. But if we pray, God delights to answer our prayers. Isn't that wonderful? God equips us with exactly what we need when we need it. So that even though we might be standing utterly and completely alone, even though we might be getting the dirty looks from the people that we loved or respected or the people who seemed to hold the power, we know that we're standing with the Lord and we'll stand strong. And in these ways as we cultivate that truth-telling within ourselves and among our brothers and sisters, as we emphasize to our children how much God loves the truth, as we hold one another accountable for speaking and defending the truth, as we praise those who guard the truth, God will be molding and shaping us into the very image of Christ, who is the living embodiment of truth. God's grateful people cherish the truth about their neighbor. Hating the falsehood that promotes injustice, but preserving the truth that promotes love. That's not easy. None of it is. Yet as we do it, the world will see in us an image of Christ himself. And how glorious, how privileged are we to receive that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us the privilege of being sons and daughters of the God of truth. Cause us to delight in truth and to cherish it especially as it impacts our neighbor. And Lord, may you strengthen us in our love for the truth. And in our courage to stand up for those who are being torn down.
This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In response, let's stand and continue our prayer, asking God to fill our lives with His power, with His truth, with His image. As we sing together, number 449, Fill Thou My Life, 449. offering this evening is for benevolence. Benevolence is the fund that we have by which we can help those who are in need, whether within the church or within the community. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have met our needs so abundantly. I pray that you would bless our offering, that it might be received by you as a token of our gratitude, and that it might be used through the deacons to demonstrate your love and your provision to those who are in need. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our offering song this evening is number 105, rendering of Psalm 57. We'll sing all four stanzas of 105.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.